This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, I've got the founder of Deep Focus with us, Ian Schaefer. I've known Ian since the mid 2000s when we were both in the digital agency business. He went on to being the chief experience officer of the engine group uh, post his acquisition, and most recently, he's become the co founder and CEO of a company called Kindred. Now, if you haven't heard of Kindred before, they're a platform for ESG leadership development, which is uh, something that I think is becoming increasingly important for businesses as they try and find their place in the modern world. Now, if you haven't heard of Ian, he's actually been named a media maven by Advertising Age. He was named a young one by Adweek. He was one of Campaign Magazine's uh, 40 over 40. He was Business Insider's coolest people in tech at one point. But my personal favorite of all the recognition uh, that I've seen him noted for, as he likes to say, was being dubbed annoying by his kids. So, Ian uh, you know, has certainly had his fair share of success in his career, but I think it's worth noting, you know, kind of what is success? Is that, uh, is that wealth? Is that fame? Is it recognition by your peers? Is that uh, personal contentment? All of those things I think could be debated, but depending on how you look uh, at the world. So while he's had some great success and certainly achieved profit, today's episode is all about his quest to align purpose and profit. And I think we're going to find this a very interesting chat given some of the very unique experiences that Ian's had in his career. And with that, here we go with another week of OSHIP. Ian, welcome to Ship. How are you? Thank you for having me. I love to follow a graceful poop. Not mine. I love also following graceful poop, but I'm glad that we're both here with my poop intro that we can we can enjoy that together. So for those of you who are listening instead of watching O Ship and you're maybe tuning into the audio version of O Ship for the first time, definitely check a video version or you have no idea what we're talking about and are probably already disconnecting the episode by now. <laughs> All jokes aside, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. You, you know, you're, you're a big personality. It's always, it's always uh, very insightful and frankly, very entertaining to listen, chat, or you know, talk with. But I think I'd love to just kind of start uh, a little bit at the beginning of this, this journey. Uh, you know, when you were at Deep Focus, again, where I, where I kind of started my original, my personal journey with you, you know, I saw you interacting with some incredible leaders within your own team, you were engaging with some incredible clients. And I really feel like that gave you a lot of perspective into basically the, the, the big face of business. And I, and I think it had a pretty profound impact on you as you know, I watched you kind of personally transform in your, in your journey in that role. I'd love to understand where this all started for you as you kind of found your quest to find you know, alignment between purpose and profit. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is, it's, a, it's a joy to be able to spend this time with you. My pleasure, buddy. Just like with everybody, like there are a series of experiences that I had that made me realize that success in business or success in general did not meet the definition that I had thought <laughs> it, it would mean when I was younger. 
I've worked in places like uh, like Miramax Films, for example, you know, a place that was notorious for a lot of different things and honestly not realizing, realizing just how notorious it was until years after the fact. But um, I left that company. One of the many reasons why I left was because of the treatment of employees. It was because of the lack of respect given to other people's opinions and uh, frankly, just a lot of misogyny. Right. And mm-hmm. um, that was something that I could not bear to witness day in and day out. So, so I left and that was what a 26 year old would do would be to, to fly away. But I did so not to another company. I, I said, I cannot work for another business and have this happening around me. So decided to build my own. That's what Deep Focus became. But the context of Deep Focus was meant to transform other businesses. Right. So yes, like we positioned ourselves as an agency, but we also like really laser focused on the entertainment industry because I felt that that was the industry that was, you know, at the time, the most, that had the greatest need for digital transformation, especially with all the pri- uh, piracy that was going on, all the privacy mm-hmm. things that were coming, um, you know, kind of moves to streaming, the, the rise of social media, all of that was happening in a way that I thought would completely change the way consumers consume, especially content. Mm-hmm. And just spent years, um, you know, working with companies you know, trying to help them transform and realizing that the solution is not hiring a chief digital officer. Mm-hmm. The solution is the CEO taking it seriously enough where it becomes a mandate throughout the company. And then recognizing the gap, the skills gap that exists between people, uh, again, who know what's coming and who are, or, or who, who are prepared for what's coming. It's not about one agent of change. It's about embedding the change fundamentally in the culture and the DNA of the business. Yeah. And, and it's like, you could say you're doing all, all, all you want, but unless you're actually doing it, you're also not learning. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as, as we expanded the agency, just in terms of size, but also in terms of client base, you know, we started working with large multinational, you know, consumer packaged goods companies, technology companies, you know, telecom companies. Right. And so their words were there for sure. Right. Again, at digital too, but then their words started coming out you know, as environmental issues started popping up. I mean, they've been popping up for quite some time, um, you know, but it, it started becoming okay to talk about or non-polarized mm-hmm. to talk about. As social issues became, you know, a bigger deal to people. You know, the latest research from, uh, from Edelman says that 68% of people trust business and business leaders to step in and take action on things that governments won't. Right? It's the last institution with any trust left. And yes, that holds true in terms of like, whether or not I can trust the company that their products are going to fail me, but it's mm-hmm. also about like shared values, right? And you know, people were changing their buying decisions or at least their loyalty decisions. You know, it's companies that were making better decisions. And again, it's like yes, digital for sure because that's all about convenience, price, versatility, right? But when kind of like you know sustainability issues, social issues started becoming a bigger part of the conversation, you know, a lot of brands were first out there to say something but their words were way ahead of their actions. Mm. And it smells like marketing. It's not, doesn't feel sincere. Well, that's what, when I, whenever somebody says like brand purpose, I'm like brand, uh, corporate mm. purpose. Like if, if the company doesn't have the purpose, like the brand isn't going to magically like, yeah, 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 on, yeah. right. And make that real, you know? So, and again, it's just like the old way of caring was like writing a check. And we all know that, you know, caring means more than just writing a check. Um, in many cases, writing a check is actually laundering a reputation, not actually like helping a situation. So, you know, that was just, you know, something I saw happening more and more. We were fielding more and more calls from companies who were looking to 
kind of steer their marketing and advertising towards social issues, but really would fail every test when it pertained to how they were behaving as an entity. And at the end of the day, like companies don't make decisions, people do. So like what, like what is it that needs to happen for people to make better decisions about the way they behave? And that, that, that was a burning question that I had. I, I often ask myself that question and in, in just as, as a leader and an operator of my own company, like what are the things that we can be doing? You know, we didn't have like a footprint, like a, a global retailer does, right? We had like you know, a few offices like around the world, great, but they were not like, we weren't leaving behind like a trail of carbon. Um, right. But we are, we were leaving, like we were working with, you know, hundreds, not thousands of people. And those calls started coming from inside the house. What are we doing on this? What are we going to do about that? Why does my, why is my experience different from somebody else's experience here? And frankly, a lot of people managing also made me realize just how different the lived experiences are of everybody that come to work at a company mm-hmm. every day. And the assumption that everyone checks all that stuff at home is naive. Um, not true. And, and to create an environment where people feel like they belong is hard. I'm still working on it. Just to set the tone, yeah, I think you've, you've laid out, I think, the importance of it. Where have you seen this go really wrong when you think about whether it's people you've worked with directly or just things you've observed in the media where, you know, this kind of lack, lack of substance, alignment, whatever you want to call it, is kind of really blown up in people's faces? We see it every day. I don't want to call out. Com- I don't want to go out and call out companies <laughs> here. Them and then mock them. Mock them on their ship and tell them they're naughty. <laughs> we'll, wag, we'll wag our fingers at them. Be like, bad. They get called out all the time. And I, I actually, like, <laughs> I want to be a part of the solution. Again, not a part of the problem here. But, um, you know, you've had company like, very, very, very well-known companies who become famous for their words, Right, still have to like uh, manage like lawsuits against them by former employees, former endorsees because of the unfair treatment. And I think that you know when you when you have calls for like social justice, but people don't feel like justice happens inside of a company itself, right? Like if people aren't seeing you know accusations all the way through, for example, right? Um, mm-hmm. Policies not being adhered to or just bad policy in general. Like we see that every day. It, it gets called out every day. I mean, look at what CEO turnover has been. We used to be talked about CMO term, turnover for years. Look at, like CEO turnover, right? Like people are getting forced out, not just be, not really because of financial performance, because it seems like companies are doing by and large, like pretty okay. But for like uh, the other vulnerabilities that they bring to an organization. And again, I think that's just because everyone's voice has been amplified, right? Like companies have like employee resource groups now that are often like, you know, acting like, you know, power centers that look are starting to look more like unions, right? In unionized mm-hmm. industries. They're not just like planning parties for Heritage Month, right? They're they're actually actively like, you know, voicing the concerns and opinions of people who work in a company because they're, ver- they're, guess what? Their voices deserve to be heard. And like, these, these are just things that we were starting to play out. And I actually, I think like part of this is a future of work. Like you might ignore yeah. it if you were just like hearing it in the hallway, right. Or passing someone at a water cooler, or they'd probably like stop talking if their boss was walking by. But now these things like leave a trail on track on Slack, right. They're in like listservs there, you know, there, there's documentation for all of this. And I just think that, you know, more and more companies are feeling like if we don't get this right. Like this is going to be like, not only publicly humiliating, but this is going to affect our balance sheet, mm-hmm. our market cap. 
you know, funny. people can, I think every business owner, leader, entrepreneur, however you want to look at it, I think can take a stance on saying, look, I, I, I choose to not be involved in any of these things. But if they choose to, then that maybe it's the path forward isn't always the most obvious one. I'd love to use that as a, as a segue um, for you to tell us a little bit more about Kindred um, and your, your latest kind of creation. And your, I think you're, what are you, like two, more than two or three years in now, aren't you, Ian? Uh, yeah, we are probably about two and a half years in. That's awesome. Well, congrats on that front. So, so t- t- tell us more about Kindred for the audience members who don't know anything about, about your company. Well, Kindred is today. We'll get to what it was. <laughs> well, Kindred <laughs> is today is a, is a platform, is a membership platform for ESG leadership development. And for those unfamiliar with ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance issues. It's been a financial and investment term for years. Um, It's starting to crack mainstream consciousness as a catch-all for issues like sustainability, mental health in the workplace, diversity, equity and inclusion and belonging, gender pay equity, right? All of these issues that I think people thought could be handled by HR maybe in the past. We realized that that was kind of triage for a lot of the pain that was inflicted upon people by the company's actions themselves. Again, like willfully or otherwise, I just think that actions were left unchecked and left unbalanced. And again, like we, we can fix that now. Like we can be like on a quest for a more perfect company. I think um, just like we we're on a quest for, to be a more perfect union as, as a country, right? Like there's um, no one's going to pass a purity test, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. But people can be better prepared for the decisions that they're going to have to make on all of these fronts, especially when the ground is constantly changing beneath their feet. So as we talk to hundreds, if not thousands of leaders, both specialists and generalists, we learned that there was a giant gap in three areas. In education, right? In understanding what is going on today, literally today, like in the world of like sustainability, climate crisis, supply chain management, things like that. But also on, you know, diversity fronts, equity fronts, mental health fronts. If you're like me, like you hear the word burnout a lot in conversations that you have with people um, because this is freaking hard what we're all going through. Um, and different people are going through it in, through different means. So it's um, not everybody's pain is the same, right? And so understanding, having a better understanding of what that is needs to affect your company policies. And you're not interesting about that kind of burnout worth noting. I think there is a a rash, you know, some people can deal with, let's call it, you know, kind of uh, rational stress of, hey, I have too much work or I have this very binary thing that I need to deal with. But because some of these subjects can be very unclear for people I think it causes an an extra level of fatigue or stress or burnout around them because a lot of people, when you know, it's one thing to be able to say, "Look, I understand, I can handle this stress," because I still understand I need to get from point A to point B. But if you don't know how to get to point B, or you're not sure whether you're running to B, C, or D, that's extra stressful people. Stressful for people, and I think it can it can really take its toll on that, on both leadership and, and a company's culture. Yeah, and we should we should also acknowledge how uncomfortable it is, right? It's uncomfortable yeah. for people to up in some cases because you know they may be tapped to help solve a problem but that also probably means that they've been unduly burdened by that problem mm-hmm. at the company and that that's a you know it's being a like a digital transformation change agent is a lot different and is often meant with a lot different pushback than being a diversity equity and inclusion change agent right mm-hmm. education is a critical part of that like knowing more about what you need to do is obviously a critical next step in actually making the decision to do something yeah. We also learned that leadership development was something that was critical 
if, if companies are being rewarded by their ability to lead. And again, like companies, like, yes, companies are leading companies, but they're filled with leaders who make decision and they need to up-level, you know, their managerial expertise, you know, wisdom, insights, you know, if they're going to be expected to be that manager, that leader of the future as well, especially as it pertains to ESG. And then finally, it's, it's community, right? And like, you feel a lot more comfortable, like jumping into the water when there are other people in it. Right. You feel a lot better having a conversation where you can listen to others having it feel a lot better about the decisions you make on standards when they're the best practices of other companies. And what we found was there was an incredible lack of connectivity and a lack of community amongst professionals, even if they were in like a particular specialty area like sustainability, Mm -hmm. um, they still weren't connecting with each other in really great ways. We're providing that opportunity. So between, again, like education, leadership development, and community, we're offering an experience to leaders and their companies where the return on their investment is felt exponentially, you know, right away, whether that's, you know, an individual on their quest to become a better leader or a company on a quest to become a leading company on these fronts. We've been around for less than a year in this incarnation as a membership-driven platform. And we've got over uh, 260 companies now with over 300 leaders of those companies, most of whom are in the C-suite, all going on this journey together. And the stories that we're hearing about what they're capable of doing, both individually and together, as force multipliers, is honestly like all I need to get out of bed every morning. First off, I love, I love it. I love, I love the positioning, I love the, uh, the, the where you've netted out. But I- you know, it wouldn't be O-Ship if I didn't ask about an O-Ship moment. So you've implied multiple times now that this is not not where you started. I know, you know, from our prior conversations that you did start as an event business, which I think everyone watching knows was maybe not the best business to be in during a pandemic. Just saying. So, so can you talk a little bit about how you how you did that pivot and, and, how, and how that evolution and journey went for you? Yeah, I mean evolution, right? Like uh, Darwin is often misquoted on this one, but it's really like those who are most able to adapt are the ones who survive, not the like the yeah. strongest, right? You just find strongest. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree with that. It doesn't have to be the strongest. It's a, a flexibility and adaptability. Yeah. So we started, if you think about it from a few years ago, like 2018, a lot of talk was about purpose, right? You had brand purpose, you had purpose driven X, Y, and Z. Purpose was kind of a word that were pe- that people were using in lieu of, I guess, the modern definition of um, ESG. And uh, we realized that this disruption was coming, right? It's Again, it's pattern recognition. Like digital business transformation happened because obviously of people's adoption of technology. But purpose-led business transformation, as we were calling it, you know, a couple of years ago, was being driven by increased transparency and, wh- and, and accountability, right? So I guess accountability is probably forced transparency, right? Because most companies don't want to take accountability themselves. It's usually foisted upon them. And so uh, companies were unprepared for that, but they were also unprepared to even breach the conversation. So, you know, how do we raise the intensity or the urgency level around companies understanding how big of a role that they play in society, modern society? We were emerging at that time from an era where companies could kind of hide in on Wall Street or in their stock prices, and have employ a very Milton Friedman, Friedman approach of, you know, profits enable you to, to make all the purpose that you want to make, right? <laughs> to do all of the, the things that you'd like to do, because you can't do them, you can't write those checks to nonprofits, you know, without those profits. So like, go for it. That license expired, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so we were at a point where, again, like companies need to understand, like if, if Walmart 
you know, made one change to their supply chain requirements, you know, to, to improve the climate, like that one decision can actually could probably like take a step forward, like in terms of uh, ameliorating uh, some, some effects of climate change, because it means thousands of companies are now going to have to choose like different products to build their products with or different ingredients to build their products with. And like, so those, and all these companies, they exist within communities. And again, like we've gotten from a place where like we've seen that these companies exploited communities. I re- remember those Walmart documentaries, you know, to companies now playing a, a, a critical role in those communities, because guess what? Americans healthcare is tied to the place where they work. Right. And so th- the role that business plays in society has just been like incre- increasingly um, more important. And the people's voices who are affected by those co- uh, companies decisions have gotten louder and more influential. So it was critical that we bring everybody together to have that conversation, to be what I would call like a more relevant, less tone deaf Davos, but, uh, you know, an event that had all the inclusivity and cultural relevance of a South by Southwest. And that's what we were building a conference, an event to be in May of 2020 at the same you, And you, you, you bring the conference back, I assume, at some point you, when, when the, Maybe. it's just delayed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the purpose of that event was to catalyze a conversation. Ironically, yeah. the thing that rendered the event moot, or I would say like an anachronism okay. in that case, was, uh, was COVID. Yeah. And what COVID also shined a light on, I would say a couple of things. One is that if the intersectionality of every issue that we face so when you look at climate, the reason why a lot of people talk about it as climate justice is because it affects people differently. We don't all have the money to, to colonize Mars, right? We're dealing with the issues on the ground. And frankly, like the communities that are often left holding the bag, you know, are the ones who are most exposed, right, to the effects of climate change, um, food insecurity. Again, mental health. These are all issues that disproportionately event certain communities within our society, most notably people of color, right? And, you know, but they, they also affect all of us. So it's, it's, it's something that, again, like just companies really needed to act on. And COVID showed that, like, if you could pivot to bottling hand sanitizer during a pandemic, you can sure as hell figure out how to change the constitution of your board. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you can literally like wave a wand and do that. The same thing that said you can't do the event was the thing that said, you know what? Everyone understands now the importance of all of this. I, I think you, I would argue your event will be stronger for because of the birth of the platform, because the, the platform yeah. will connect the dots between the events. And so the platform, you know, it will always exist. And you could argue this is a conversation that requires continuity and ongoing engagement and the platform is probably a smart move for it. And can always benefit from bright, shiny objects. Like that's what events are, right? They're, they're ways to, reasons for people to get on a plane. Yeah. L- luckily, the, uh, luckily the founder was a, as a digital wizard. So you were well positioned for that. Well, you kind of, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So Darwinism paying off there. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to ch- um, go, do a call back to something you said earlier. I'm doing this off memory. So apologies if I, if I quote this wrong, please correct me if I'm wrong. You qu- said there was a stat from Edelman that it was 67% of people put more faith in private companies over the government to provide some of these kind of transformational services that's called society is that, 68, is that 68 68 68 okay not too far off what i was couldn't help but think to myself i wonder how that applies in america versus europe uh where you know it's kind of we're so capitalism centric here and we put such a 
But there's been, a, frankly, the last number of years, without getting into the politics of it, obviously massively increased distrust in government from both from both parties, and then just kind of this uh, shiny you know, capitalism as as the you know, the highest idol of the land kind of thing in the states. I'd be interested to see you know how this kind of plays out and. In different, in different countries. It's not you know, necessarily the subject of the show, but I'd love your take on it because I, I think you know, obviously you're living this every day. Yeah. Um, I mean, Amer- America is unique in a lot of different ways, both good and bad. You know, I mentioned like healthcare being tied to employment. That's a uniquely yeah. American problem or challenge, right? And, uh, and I think, again, it puts more of the onus on business to step up in a lot of these cases including like the privatization of healthcare, <laughs> whereas in other companies, you know, other countries, many other countries have socialized medicine, which is supported by the government. And obviously there's that, that could in some cases lead to trust and also more, even more mistrust. But uh, we just have like a uniquely, a unique flavor of capitalism here. Um, mm-hmm. One that we try as much as we can to keep as pure as we can. But as we've seen some of the most sweeping changes to American society that have benefited the most people have actually been things that feel more socialist in policy, right? Like social security, you know, like some aspects of healthcare reform, uh, Medicare, right? Like, so the, the welfare, right? Like these are, these are all things that seem like exceptions in, in our case, but are standard in other countries. And I think, you know, while like we always talk about capitalism and democracy as like this great experiment, it's weird to just conduct like your own experiments without looking at the things that are working everywhere else. Um, Because there are a lot of other scientists hard at work on those experiments too. And that's why you have peer reviews and publications and things like that. And so it'd be wise for us to continue to look elsewhere to see like, what are other decisions that countries are making? How can they like make sense here? And, you know, without necessarily just blindly painting something, which is again, part of the, elements of what also leads has led to tribalism here mm. and social media has played a big role in that, but that might be another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. You know, but like to, to say like, let's, let's try th- like Let's, let's have the courage to try things. I'm not saying move fast and break things because you don't want to break people. Mm-hmm. But again, like we should, like we should try things here. We can't trust government to move fast mm-hmm. uh, or to do like adequate risk. Assessment. That's for sure. So, you know, Companies have to do it. So I want to narrow down on this on this company side for a second. So when you when you your your uh, group and your company obviously helps facilitate a lot of this change. But if you had to meet a, a CEO or board or founders, you know, tomorrow, uh, and and they said to you, you know, Ian, g- give me some guidance on on how I should try and align purpose and profit within within my business. What would be maybe the you know one or two things that would be at least at a high level, you'd say this is this is where you need to start your journey. I think they need to, again, draw parallels on things that have worked in the past. They have to look at who are the leading companies in these areas and what are the rewards that they're reaping from it. And by the way, those rewards could be like, it costs less to recruit, recruit new employees and frankly, less to retain them. You know, it means that by providing a healthy work environment, you don't have to compensate for an unhealthy work environment by paying people more to come to work there, right? Mm. I'm not saying pay people less generally. I'm just saying that like sometimes like higher salaries are compensation for a horrible work-life balance, Mm. right? Or, I mean, especially now that when work is home, 
in the home for so many people, um, or people are forced to go to work in a place that they might feel is unsafe. Like that, that th- these are things that, that are going to come up and it's worth understanding what the, the vulnerabilities are to the organization, especially in financial terms, because that's really often what gets a company to take some kind of action. It's probably either financial upside or the requisite fear of financial downside. And the same as far as reputation, because no one wants to be painted, you know, as evil. Some companies have gone so far as to make their mission statement say that we are not that. And then I've had to amend it because again, they are not pure either. Right. And so yeah, don't want people drifting over to the dark side. Yeah. So it's like, you know, these are, these are all things that again, like look, there's, there's going to be, I would, I would tell somebody like there is 50, there are $50 billion that are, that is being poured by ESG focused funds into American businesses this year. Do you want access to them? Do you want your stock to move up because they are buying up shares of your company because you're leading in this area and therefore going to be seen as a more sustainable business going forward? One of the greatest things that I've found about all of this is that the, the word sustainability has broadened to be inclusive of so many different things. It's not just like, are you going paperless, right? It's like, can you, can you make changes that are going to be necessary for the next 10 years? It's a long-term view as opposed to a short-term view. And thankfully, we've got organizations like Long-Term Stock Exchange, for example, out there who are saying to companies, you've got to change your standards. NASDAQ just successfully petitioned the SEC to be able to ask companies for their race and gender disclosures um, in order to get listed on NASDAQ. So regulation is coming too. So there's so many reasons why it makes sense for a company to now like go in this, because I would just point back to a prior era, which we're practically still in, which is saying, look at the companies that failed on that front. Look where they are. Some of them are like out of business. Many of them are out of business. And I'm not saying like the penalty for not getting ESG right is going out of business, but it's certainly going to make it more expensive to do business in the long run. So I want to go back to this subject of recommendations in a minute, but I want to go down the, the rabbit hole of ESG for a moment. So you noted earlier that uh, a lot of these, uh, this kind of ESG movement has been around in, in the financial world uh, for a while. Uh, we're seeing you know, that, that kind of term starting to enter the mainstream a, yeah. a little bit more now. But what you know, for people out there who are inspired by the you know these kind of things, subjects we're discussing right now, and maybe want to build entire businesses around them, what do you know about the ESG funds that are out there, and how people are you know, how people are investing in, in ESG initiatives and ESG focused businesses? You know, there, there are ESG funds, there are impact funds, which are not necessarily ESG funds, but who are investing in companies who are leaving a positive impact on the world, which is more of an attitudinal approach. ESG is more of, again, like key measure approach, right? You're looking at sustainability reporting, gender equity reporting, could be an employee happiness reporting, like whatever the standards develop into. ESG funds basically have a thesis that says, you know, the companies that, you know, are making smarter decisions, more sustainable decisions are going to be in a stronger position in five to 10 years. Um, it's hard to argue with that because like businesses that are solely extracting from, again, the environment or the economy are probably not going to be sustainable in the long run. And if you just look at the numbers again, like I keep going back to numbers because I think sometimes that's the only thing that forces a decision hand. The investor ESG software market alone, like software that helps ESG investors make smarter decisions. Companies like Blackstone, Bloomberg, 
I said Blackstone. I meant Blackrock, but Blackstone too. <laughs> Which I was doing the mental gymnastics in my head to figure that one out. Yeah, Blackrock. Well, honestly, like you, look, Blackstone has a ESG fund. Like it's, it's really like you companies who are historically not gone, who have historically not gone there because they didn't want to be seen as activists, right? Yeah, yeah. Now see it as like you know what? It's obvious. The writing yeah. is on the wall, right? And so, but Blackrock, who's been a leader and also is a kindred member as a company. You know, these the, they're fueling the growth of a $1.5 billion ESG investor software market with a CAGR, uh, a common annual growth rate of 15% every year. Th- that is just software that helps investors make better ESG decisions. Mm-hmm. This is $1.5 billion industry. So can you imagine, I, I firmly believe that the companies that will be the most successful over the next decade are going to be the ones who place the proper priority level, which I would say is damn near the top for ESG related decision making. And that's why, again, it was just so obvious to us, like what was needed, because when you look at the amount, number of decisions need to be made versus the lack of preparation to make those decisions, it was quite clear what we needed to do. And that's, that's why we went there. So, so I'm going to, take this one last place as a kind of final question for today. Uh, A lot of the things we've talked about, I think, are applied at the company level. We're talking about big initiatives uh, about, you know, how you focus this in when you're a company or big business, small business, rising business, whatever it is. But some of the people that are listening or watching our ship right now might be saying, how, you know, how do I apply this to my personal life? You know, I don't have a big company or my company doesn't do this kind of stuff. You know, are there practices or there things that I can apply this thinking to my everyday individual life, my own brand, my personal brand, you know, uh, but again, to your point, maybe that's not really about your personal brand anymore, just like it's about a corporate mission, uh, a corporate purpose versus a brand purpose, you know, your purpose. How do you, how do you apply this kind of stuff in your own world? Would you have any guidance or tips for people that are maybe thinking or asking those kind of questions? Well, first, let me say that any reputation that's built upon what you say as opposed to a reputation built on what you do is, is BS. That's your, like social media clout, right? And yeah. so the repu- the real reputation that you have is because of the things that you've done, mm-hmm. not because of the things that you said, you know, so that's why I think like a lot of the personal brand stuff, I think we can see through it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and because really it's like, you know, cause if someone says one thing a lot, if they post a lot of like LinkedIn tropes on social media, right? That will all get thrown out the window when we learn about their bad behavior, right? So, yeah. so that's one thing I would say, you know, but from a person, like, I think it's actually okay to think about yourself as a professional and saying, in order for me to succeed, I need to get smarter about this. Mm-hmm. But getting smarter about issues related to environmental and social impact issues requires you to have a sense of humility, a keen and developed sense of empathy and, and curiosity. And by the way, those are three things that companies can have, again, because their leaders are that way. Yeah, and here, it's, here. it's going to be an important part of every company culture to instill humility, empathy, and curiosity as key values. If they're going to expect to try to understand somebody's point of view that is not necessarily correlative to their own lived experience, right? It's why like, there's such a disproportionate number of, of white male CEOs who get a lot of this wrong. Their lived experiences do not reflect those of many others who did not have the privilege of being able to raise money easier, get a job easier, get paid more, like all of those things. 
And again, it takes like, it takes some humility to understand that and appreciate that, but it takes moxie to actually do something about it. So like, you know, these are all things, and, and I think it's okay for you to be seen as like, if I want to be a leader of tomorrow, I need to possess these traits, go work on them. Go work on them. It's, but it's not like, you're not going to get there like you study for the LSATs. Yeah, <laughs> well said. Right, like you're going to get there through practice, through listening. Okay. I can't tell you, like, I swear every day I learn something new about actually like leading through all of this, prioritizing through all of this, working through all of this, you know, because of the conversations I'm having with people. And I often get it wrong. And I think, mm -hmm. being, again, part of that humility is like being able to admit, like when you get it wrong, I get things wrong every day. And I think every, everyone does like to a certain degree, but can you use it to get better? And I think that's the, you know, that requires commitment, right? But I think that's part of the curiosity is always wanting to get better, always want to learn more different, better ways of doing things. I think in this case, it used to be, digital used to be like to get to point A to B or A to Z faster, right? I think in this case, it's to help people grow from A to Z better because, you know, let's face it. Like, I think like if everyone looks back on their careers at the end of the day, they want to say, yes, I think in the past, they'd want to say, did I leave the company in a better place than when I joined it? But I think they'd also want to say, did I leave the world in a better place because I was in it? Love uh, some very strong sage-like wisdom in that in that last section. I really enjoyed that. One of the things you noticed you mentioned in there was, was listening. And so on the note, we're going to listen to some of the people in the audience who are asking questions. Uh, I want to thank everyone who's been watching. Some lovely comments. Uh, a shout out to Marcel Fairbairn. Thank you for watching. I'm glad you're enjoying uh, Ian's comments uh, so much. Uh, and I want to recognize Peter Ebanks. And, and uh, Peter says, quote unquote, I work with a waste management solution based on plasma uh, gasification. Is this something which would apply to Kindred and their ESG model? I'm not terribly familiar with plasma gasification, but <laughs> what I would say is that if it is a part of the solution for clean energy, right? Or at least cleaner waste. I think that's something like, look at the climate funds that are out there right now. Like look at what Chris Saka is doing with lower carbon capital, right? And like he, he was, he's, by the way, like lower carbon capital started off as like kind of an impact fund, right? That wasn't necessarily designed to deliver the returns, I think, of a VC fund. But there was such strong demand from investors who want VC-like returns on impact-related investments because they believe it's possible. Like the appetite for this is so big. And we've got a lot of these climate investors, for example, in the Kindred community, not just, again, providing expertise and knowledge, but getting expertise and knowledge that, yeah, like that is a critical part of ESG because it is part of like, if it's not part of the supply chain, it's part of the waste chain, you know, but that's still, you know, what goes in comes out uh, to go back to the poop. <laughs> I love that. You can't no better way to end the show. This <laughs> a perfect pullback to the, to the beginning. Uh, my head is spinning with some new ideas to talk to Ian about, about uh, ways we can work together. I'm really excited for you. I, I love, I love that you found this rhythm in life where you're, doing something that it clearly excites you as an entrepreneur, but it also makes um, you feel like you're making an impact on the world and helping other people make an impact on the world. And, and, and uh, I, I admire you as, as always for uh, that uh, continued journey as, as an entrepreneur. Thank you for tuning in. The best thing that you can do to support this show is give us a like, uh, thumbs up, uh, share us with your social feed, tell a friend, uh, post an episode on you know, any place you can to get the word out. 
OSHIP is something we do really just because we're passionate about sharing this great content and these leaders who so generously give their time to come in and chat with us and talk about issues that are powerful and important and can shape all of our lives. So if you enjoy the content that we create, please do a little bit to help by by just you know subscribing, following, liking, sharing, and, and helping us get the word out there. And we actually, if you want to learn more about OSHIP, check out the newly released OSHIPshow.com. Uh, and we have direct links now to all of the different places that you can listen to OSHIP in its audio format as a podcast, as well as all the different places you can watch us in video format as well. Really, really easy now to send that to folks and, and let them kind of engage your ship in the way um, that they want to. I also want to give another massive thanks to Ian. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming on. Um, you can follow Ian on Twitter uh, at I, uh, Schaefer. Uh, you can also hit up his company at Kindred. He's an active Twitter user, or um, you can obviously find him at his website. Any last things um, you want to share, Ian, before we call it for the day? Yeah, sure. Just a, a shout out to my uh, incredible indefatigable co-founder Alyssa Bick and the entire team that's that's building Kindred every day. And of course, our members, you know, who are doing such amazing things with the experience that we're providing to them, really proving out that the most effective strategy is actually like teaching them to fish, as opposed to uh, the old way of doing things where I would say we would be providing services, <laughs> right? If you really want to deliver impact at scale, you've got to learn how to do it yourself. And so I uh, appreciate everyone's commitment to, to what we're building. I love it. Well, everyone, thank you so much for watching our ship. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, we'll see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O Ship Show.